I am assuming for more than just me standing in this room that it was an interesting week. I know for some of you, you had great stuff go on. For others, you know, you were trapped, and that may be good or bad. For others, you had water that you needed to get rid of. If you're a dad like me with two high school girls, you're still recovering from the fact they went to prom last Saturday night. And there's just a lot of stuff that comes at us in life. And that's kind of where I want to camp this morning and, and talk a little bit about that. God and all of his providence, we're in a week five of a 11-week study called Steadfast. And today's topic is Steadfast in Joy. And having stood ankle deep in water in here at about five o'clock in the morning, joy was a tough one for me on Monday. I'll give you that. I'll say that right off the bat. Um, but the good thing is we're all in here worshiping together this morning. Um, so that's where I want to camp this morning. But I want to start with a story this morning. In 1828, there was a man who was born, his name was Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a businessman. He was a follower of Jesus Christ who loved the Lord and who God rewarded greatly um, or caused to prosper greatly in his businesses. He made lots of money. A good bit of his money he poured back into real estate, and he bought much real estate in the Chicago area, downtown Chicago area, and he was very successful. He used a lot of what he had to further ministries at that time, and one of his favorite people that he uh, gave money to to help promote um, their ministry was a man named D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist and Bible teacher that went throughout this country and all throughout the world sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, in 1871, the great Chicago fire swept through um, and literally burned to the ground most of the assets of Mr. Spafford. He went from being a very wealthy man to being just this side of a pauper overnight. A couple weeks before the Chicago fire, though, his youngest child, his only son, passed away due to a childhood illness. So he went from being the father of five to the father of four, and those other children that he had were daughters. He lost his, his only son, which was kind of his uh, love of his life. He lost most of his business, most of his wealth, all over the course of a couple weeks. He decided at that time that he was going to not only... Uh, try and retain as much joy and hope as he could in the Lord, even though times really were lousy. Um, and he had always been a big supporter of, of D.L. Moody and his evangelistic efforts, and Moody was on his way to London to do an evangelistic crusade for a couple months in London. And Spafford decided that he would, even though he had very little means at this point, continue to support him financially in that. So he continued to fund Moody in his endeavors, and Moody left on a boat, and Spafford was going to go with his family and follow them and do as much as they could to support their ministry um, on land with them in England as he could. Some business things turned a little uh, more sour for him, and he was not able to travel with his family. So he put his wife and his four daughters on one boat, and he was going to follow a couple days later. He put his his wife and kids on the boat and sent them towards England. And then a couple days later, he boarded a ship and was started to sail across to England himself. In the middle of the Atlantic, he got word from the captain of the ship that there had been a shipwreck of a ship that was in front of them, the ship that carried his wife and kids. All four of his daughters perished. 
Spafford sat alone in his cabin, and the captain told him that they were nearing the place where the shipwreck had happened, where his children had perished. He pulled out a pen and paper. He penned one of the great hymns of the faith, It Is Well With My Soul. Think about that. You lose five children, virtually everything you own. You're not quite sure of the health and of your wife who's been in a shipwreck. And you pen it as well with my soul. There's a man that understood that the circumstances of life are not what dictate our joy and our peace. So this morning as we talk about this topic of being steadfast in joy, I want you to think about that for a minute and think about what the world's definition of joy is versus what the Bible says about joy. See, the world's definition of joy is this. I looked it up in the dictionary this week. It says that joy is delight, happiness, pleasure, bliss, ecstasy, and elation. As I thought about all those different things, those different parts of that definition, the one thing that that grabbed hold of me was that they're all temporary. They're all based on the circumstances of life. They're all things that will will come quickly and, and fade away quickly. And as long as our joy is based on the circumstances of life around us, there'll be a lot of days that we really won't be able to have any. I was up here on Monday morning early, about 2.30 or so, I think, and walked through the building here, and there was a couple inches of water sitting in this room, and I thought, this is really bad. This is going to be a mess. I went home, got a little bit of sleep, and got back up here about about 5.30, and uh, what had been in here was just the beginning of it, and there was water through all the way back to the alley and the nursery and other areas as well. And I will be honest with you, I walked through here and with tears in my eyes thinking, I don't know how in the world we're going to deal with this mess. At 6 o'clock in the morning, I was calling water abatement people to see what we could do to get the water sucked out of this building and get things returned. And the first guy I called, he said, Mr. Erickson, I'd love to help you, um, but I have 12 trucks and they're four feet underwater myself and we can't get there. And word went out to the people of this church, and I know not all of you got the word right away, and that's fine, because the Lord supplied a great army of people to come. And we tore out carpet, and we sucked up water, and we dried every little crack and crevice, and we are sitting here having church this morning. But when I came in here at 5.30 in the morning, I will tell you, I I was weeping because I didn't know where we'd go from here, because the circumstances were really lousy. And the lesson in that is is this, that if if we're going to have this joy that the Bible talks about, it's really not having anything to do with our circumstances. It's not about how our bank account looks. It's not about the security of our job. It's not about um, the health of ourselves or our children or our parents. That's not the biblical definition of where this joy comes from. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, a familiar passage of Scripture to a lot of you, says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, or when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
this steadfastness and joy. The Bible says steadfastness and joy doesn't come from good circumstances. Our steadfastness and joy comes from various trials that we're going to encounter along the way. See, it's easy when things are good to to smile, to be happy, to be joyful, and to rejoice in the things that, that are great. It's when things aren't so pretty good that that becomes a lot harder. And it's very hard to be steadfast. The word steadfast means this, unwavering, unfaltering, resolute, persistent, committed, dedicated, and firm. And I think if we are going to be attractive as Christians to the rest of the world that may not know Jesus, we need to be steadfast in joy. We need to be those people that no matter what the circumstances are around us, that we are committed and dedicated and unwavering in saying that my perspective is bigger than right now. My perspective is eternal, and therefore I can be joyful no matter what is going on in my life right now. I tell my teenagers, i got four teenagers at my house, you can pray for me, that really nothing good ever happens after midnight, so you need to be home because bad stuff happens out in the world after midnight. On September 13th, 2008, I was up here in the middle of the night watching water lick up against the front of the church and watching water pour into what used to be a door that doesn't exist here anymore. As Hurricane Ike put about a foot of water into the nursery area here, and that was a bad night. On October 29th, 2009, I got a phone call from the Tomball Fire Department saying, Mr. Erickson, the church building's on fire. You may want to get up here. And I came up and found every fire truck in the greater Houston area here in our parking lot as the offices of the church burnt to the ground, or were gutted anyway. Again, after midnight. It was 3.22 to be exact. I'm not sure exactly why I remember that, except I was standing out in the parking lot in the rain watching our church burn at 3.22 in the morning, so it kind of impresses you. And then April 18th this year, watching water come into the church and not being able to stop it in any way. Those are bad times. Those are times when, when joy is not really the first thing on the front of your mind there, that circumstances of life are kind of lousy. About seven and a half years ago, Jack Arrington, who was a senior pastor of this church, decided that um, the Lord was calling him someplace else, and, and he resigned as senior pastor. And I got elected to, or persuaded, or forced, or something, to do the first sermon after Jack had left, after almost 18 years of ministry here. Last week, Skeet resigned as senior pastor, so I drew the straw again on that one and get to do the first one here. So um, those things were not after midnight, though, I guess, so that, that's better. But there's just there's a lot of stuff that life throws at us, is what I'm trying to say to you. And, and as, as things come our way, it becomes a choice of, of our perspective. Are we, are we caught in the moment and therefore we're looking at the circumstances that are around us at any given time? And sometimes it feels like you're standing ankle deep in flood water and it's hard to be joyful. Or we can say that God has great things in store and we just need to you know, follow Him and His lead in this and know that the same God 
sits on the throne of heaven today as did thousands of years ago and will for all of eternity. And therefore, we can be steadfast in our joy. See, when Jack left, it was a big, a big upheaval and turmoil. Now, I will say this, the things at our church at that point were not as good as they are now. We were a smaller church. Financially, we weren't in as good a shape, and just, we had some issues. And over the time, the six-plus years that Skeet has been here as senior pastor, quite frankly, our church has grown in so many ways. We've grown in number. We've grown in depth of, of believers. We've grown in the, the number of people that have really taken on the mantle of being a disciple-maker in our church. And our church is in such a great spot right now. And my, my hope and my, my uh, prayer is that when we look back years from now at this point in time, we will say that although we were a time without um, a senior pastor and we were doing the interim kind of thing, that it was a time that our church again exploded and grew in such a great way and God had great things in store as long as we don't get caught up in the circumstances of the day. So that's where I want to be this morning. I want us to understand today that, that our circumstances do not necessarily dictate our attitudes. That the biblical definition of joy is not about how life is going, but it's about something much bigger than that. Last Sunday, as Skeet wrapped up his sermon, he talked about uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he talked about the last couple verses, where Paul says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. See, Paul had this perspective that, that the stuff of life was not what brought him joy. It was the, the knowing, the knowledge that when he stood before his Savior in heaven, that he would look around and there would be this great cloud of people that are there because he was faithful to disciple and evangelize them. And if you read anything about Paul's life, you will know that this was no easy task for him. That Paul was, was constantly under all kinds of persecution from the Jews, from the Romans, from everybody that was around. But Paul said that his joy was in those people. And that's one of the biblical perspectives I want us to look at this morning. We can look at our circumstances or we can look at the people that God has placed around us that we have a chance to impact and say that my joy is going to come from being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who shares and disciples others, shares with and disciples others in the name of Jesus Christ. And therefore we will find joy. And the steadfastness part enters into that at this point too because these things are not easy. These things do not come quickly. It is not the fact that, we, that there is this great formula. You know, when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about, about you know, what believers need to know, when we talk about furthering our church, it, it usually becomes tied up in, in programs. The, the one thing we know about Paul is there wasn't a book for him to follow here on this thing. 
He, there wasn't this, this laid out, you know, if you want to disciple people, this is how you do it, because it had never been done before except by Jesus. So we like to think that if it's all laid out for us and there's this nice formula that we can follow it, and that's how this whole thing should work, and that's, that's how we do it the best. But I will tell you that for Paul and for Peter and for John and for Matthew and for Philip and for Andrew, what they did is they went and told people about Jesus Christ and the impact that Jesus had made in their lives. And they did it with joy in their hearts, no matter what the circumstances of their lives were that were swirling around them on any given day. Because they knew that once they were lost and now they were found, once they were blind and now they see they needed a Savior and they had one in Jesus Christ and that was their mission, to share that with as many people as they could and help them to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't about the program and it wasn't about their abilities and it wasn't about their great wisdom and it wasn't about their tremendous skills. It was about Jesus who had impacted their lives. You know, I've been in ministry for almost 30 years now, and, and for many, many, many years, we would plan things and we would get things together, and I, and I would pray, my prayer would be the same. Lord, we have done our best to plan this, and Lord, so we want this to be successful. We want you to be glorified. So, so God, take our efforts and bless them. And a number of years ago, I realized that I was dead wrong in that. Although my heart was right and we were desperately trying to do always what God wanted us to do and desperately trying to please Him and to bring others to know Jesus and to help others grow in their faith with Jesus, my prayers changed. And my prayers now go like this. God, You have a plan. And I want You to conform my life and my ministry and my thoughts and my desires to fit Your plan so that You can truly bless them. Do you see the difference there between asking God to bless our plans and asking God to fit us into his plans? One of the amazing things is that God has chosen us as human beings to be his instruments to deliver the gospel and to be disciple makers in this world. It is a terrible plan from a human perspective. God takes his greatest gift. He takes his own son, Jesus Christ, sends him to the cross to die on a cross for sins that he had not committed so that mankind could be redeemed. And then he leaves that in the hands of a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and, quite frankly, guys that didn't get it most of the time. What in the world was he thinking? He was thinking that he'd be glorified by his people that he wanted us to be a part of his team, that he wanted us to be a part of his ministry and his uh, working in the hearts of mankind. He wanted us to be blessed by the fact that we could step up and that we could share Jesus with people and we could see the excitement in their hearts as they come to know him as their Savior, as they come to grow in him. And we could encourage people as we see them taking steps to disciple others and to use the gifts that God has given them to further God's kingdom. That's what he was thinking. It's really lousy planning from a human perspective. It's really good planning from a godly perspective where He is going to empower us to do His will. Are you willing to be one of those people today that can put aside your wants, your desires, your plans, your thoughts on how this should be done best so that God can use you? That's a real question this morning. 
And are you going to do it with a smile on your face and joy in your heart, knowing that serving God is the best thing that you can do and that you are going to be steadfast in joy and not be consumed by the circumstances of life that swirl around you every day, but know that you are doing your best to serve God and it's up to him to make things work. And he will do that if we serve him faithfully. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to camp on verses 13 through 20 for a little bit here. And then I want to wrap up with a, the same story that we shared uh, about seven and a half, eight years ago when Jack Arrington left, because I think it's really pertinent again today. Strange how God pulls all these things back around again. But let's look first at 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 13. It says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is taken, uh, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased uh, God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavor for the more, uh, the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Because I wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. See, Paul's joy was in those people that he had a chance to share the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ with, those people that he had a chance to disciple. And he says the, the real joy of that is not in his great work that he was able to do. Let's go back and look at verse 13. It says this, <coughs> excuse me. He says that he is thankful that God con uh, to God constantly for this, that the people received the word of God that they, heard, that they heard from him, that they accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, and that the word of God was at work in the believers. You get that? It's not about how gifted you are. Paul, and Paul was one of the most gifted evangelists that's ever lived. He was set up to do God's work. But Paul said it wasn't about what I could do. It's about the Word of God. The Word of God that people first heard and then they received and then they understood and then it was doing a work in them. So my next question for you this morning is this. We all come and sit here on Sunday mornings and, and we, we have opportunities all throughout the week to hear God's Word. You know, you can, you can turn on about five or six different radio stations in the Houston area and hear God's Word almost any time, day or night, either being read, preached, sung, something. If that's not good enough for you, if you have any kind of electronic device, a phone, a tablet, a computer, or whatever, you can have God's Word read to you in almost any accent that you want. 
it's better with that kind of British accent. Sounds better, doesn't it? It's not the hearing of God's Word that's our problem. We have the opportunity to hear God's Word all the time. The question is, is God's Word just something we're hearing? Or are you willing to receive it? Are you willing to take it inside of you so that it may change you? Hearing is not our issue. Receiving is the first one of our issues. And then once we receive God's Word, are we willing, are we willing to hear, have God's Word transform us because we understand it? And we, we start to grow a heart that's the same as God's heart uh, for people and for things around us. And does it begin to do a work in us? See, when God's work does a, Word does a work in us, we don't keep it to ourselves. It spills out on other people. And we say, I know who I am. And this is what I was saying before, you know, God had a really bad plan entrusting this to a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and stuff until they all went and said, let me tell you about this guy, Jesus. This is what I know. I was a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. God raised him from the dead in victory over sin and death. And now I am a faithful follower of his, and I want everyone to be in the same place that I am. It's that simple. You want to know what God wants you to do? It's that right there. Take that to the people that God has placed around you. It's an incredible thing. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, a lot of times we shy away from sharing Jesus with others or, or trying to be that spiritual guy in the lives of other people. And it's because we don't feel that we're qualified or anything. But here's what the Bible says. It says that you have this incredible treasure of God stored in jars of clay. And some of us are cracked, some of us leak a little bit, some of us are chipped, some of us, our lids don't fit right, and that's all good because God doesn't care about the vessel. He cares about what's in it. And he says, we have the surpassing glory of God to share with others. And it's not about the vessel, it's about the doing. Let's go back to our passage for a second and in 1 Thessalonians here, verse 14 says this, For brothers, you became imitators of the churches of God, uh, imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. See, along with having the Word transform them, these other believers that Paul was talking about here actually followed an example of other people as well. <clears throat> Christianity and discipleship and living the kind of life that God wants you to lead as a believer is really, really difficult as a solo act. That's why we have life groups here. That's why we do uh, you know, stuff together. That's why we gather together on Sunday mornings so we can support each other and build each other up and encourage each other and hold each other accountable and all those other things because he wants us to be imitators of Others. And this is an interesting thing. He says that there were inner imitators of the churches in Judea. The churches in Judea did not have a good 
time. The churches in Judea were, were churches made up primarily of Jews, and the church in Thessalonica was made up primarily of, of Roman citizens. Um, and the, the churches in Judea, let's look at what it says. Look at verse 14. It says, um, you suffered from the same things that our countrymen, uh, of your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind. So get this. He's saying, here's how this works. You're following these folks. And look at the good track record these folks have. They're suffering. They're being killed. Um, they're opposed to all by all mankind. They're, verse 16 says they're being hindered from speaking to the Gentiles. Verse 17 says that uh, people are being torn away. And verse 18 says that they're even being hindered by Satan. So here's this idea, folks. Get this. If you're expecting that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and no matter how good you do at living for Him and trying to disciple others and being exactly the person that God wants you to do, it's not going to come easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be harsh. You can be standing ankle deep in water that you don't know what to do with a lot of the time. As a matter of fact, that's kind of how you know that you're doing it right, I think. If everything in your life is all, you know, sunshine and rainbows, I'm, I'm not sure you're doing it right. Verse 19 and 20 again says, It's our hope and joy of our, uh, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. So Paul says this too. It's not going to be easy, but we need to keep an eternal perspective. See, it's not about what we do here and now, necessarily. It's about knowing that God can use our here and now for all of eternity. And therefore, since that is the, the thing that we're looking at, that is the prize, that is the ultimate goal, is to see as many people that God has placed around us in heaven because of the way that we live and because of the things that we proclaim, we need to be steadfast in joy. We need to share what Jesus Christ has meant in our lives to other people. We need to be transformed enough so that people look at us and say, I want what he has, what she has. As people in 21st century America, we have a pretty short time perspective most of the time. Paul says we need to get an eternal perspective and understand that what we do now has eternal consequences. It's not about people being happy. It's about people being in heaven. See, there's a lot of circumstances that can take our eyes off the joy of sharing Jesus with others. There's a lot of circumstances that can take our eyes off of what God is doing in our lives. There's a lot of circumstances, you know, and I know some of them are really harsh. They're, you know, people are sick. People are literally dying. People are in financial ruin. People go through fire and all kinds of other things. And those are all really horrible. And I understand those circumstances are bad. And they're hard to deal with. But still, if we have a perspective that says, this is a short time and eternity is forever, I think it helps us to be joyful in those circumstances, helps us to be steadfast. 
Our task is to be steadfast, unwavering, unfaltering, resolute, persistent, committed, dedicated, and firm. And our example, as always in Scripture, is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You got that? For Jesus, it was the joy to go to the cross. Now anyone that's read anything in the Gospels about the crucifixion or seen one of the movies, you know that that's a tough time to experience joy. But Jesus' perspective was always on the end game, which is heaven. And that's how he endured that. And that was actually joy for him, knowing that his people were going to be redeemed because of what he was doing in going to the cross. Like I said, the last time the senior pastor left, it fell to me to preach the Sunday after he left as well. I'm not sure what I'm doing right or wrong on this one. Maybe a little bit of both, I don't know. But on that day, it struck me that the, the story from Scripture that I like the best that talks to these moments is in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. You really don't have to turn there. Just, just you know the story. The story of a young shepherd boy that the Bible describes as this. He was pretty and had rosy cheeks. And he found himself standing across the valley from a giant that's over nine feet tall with the best weaponry that the world had at that point in time. And you know, there's a lot of times in our lives I think that we look out and we feel kind of like we're facing a giant and we're just a little pretty rosy-cheeked kid. That we don't have the, the gifts, the skills, the weaponry to face the giant. I want to read to you just a short portion of that scripture from Samuel 7, 1 Samuel 17. Verse 10 and 11 says this, and the Philistine, the giant, said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly dismayed and greatly afraid. This is what happens, folks. When the giants of this world, whether it be cancer, whether it be flood, whether it be marriage problems, whether it be financial problems, when those things come at us, we have choices. The people of Israel, the army of Israel, stayed in their tents. They shrunk back and just stayed put. I think some of them actually went home because they didn't want to be there anymore. Because this went on for day after day after day after week after month. And every day the giant came out, and the giant stood there and taunted the people of Israel. But skip down to verse 45, and we read this. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will cut you down and cut off your head, 
and I will give you uh, give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he gives you uh, into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, get this, this is my favorite part of the whole story. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. See, guys, you, we can't stop giants. They're everywhere. We can't stop the circumstances of life. It's everywhere. But what we can do is we can choose to be like David who says, in the name of the God of Israel, in the name of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for me, I'm going to run to meet that, and I'm not going to cower in my tent anymore. And I'm going to be that guy that comes at it with a smile on my face, knowing that my God is with me. And it's not by sword and spear and cleverness and all the things like that, but it's by the fact that my God is with me, and I'm going to do what he wants me to do, and I'm going to run and meet that giant. And today I'm going to feed he and his like to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Not because I'm so special, but because the Lord God is with me. It's choices we make in the circumstances of life that determine whether people are going to be willing to follow us as we follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the word this morning that despite circumstances, we can have joy. That despite the circumstances of life, Lord, that we can be steadfast unshakable, unmoving, not because we are so great, so special in of ourselves, but because we serve a living God. And that your desire is that we live in a way that attracts others to you. So Lord, I thank you for that message this morning, and I pray, Father, that we would not take it lightly, but we'd be transformed by your word today, Lord, and that we would run to meet the giants that lay in front of us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.